brief content warning this week. This is the end of the Trojan War, and there's a sacking of an ancient world city. So there's considerable violence and mentions of sexual assault. You can find more info on mythpodcast.com. This week on Myths and Legends, we wrap up the Trojan War. Well, we'll learn that if your enemy leaves a big gift for you on your doorstep, you should absolutely bring it in, get drunk, and fall asleep. The creature this week is a carnivorous unicorn, which, yes, was absolutely a thing. This is Myths and Legends, episode 177D, Horsin' Around. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This is part four of the series, and even more so than usual, if you haven't heard the other ones, please go do that. Previously on this podcast, Achilles, the demigod son of Thetis, killed Hector, the prince of Troy, after Hector killed Patroclus. He then dragged the body around and just generally desecrated it until Priam, king of Troy, appealed to his humanity and he gave Hector back to be buried. Achilles fought like a man who was already dead. He had been fighting that way for weeks. There was Hector, of course, and the massacre the day he died. There was an Amazonian woman who became the new Trojan champion after Hector. She was a challenge, and after thinking she might be the one who finally did it, when she pushed Achilles back three times, Achilles killed her. King Priam's nephew, an Ethiopian man named Memnon, arrived after that and killed one of Nestor's boys. Ajax challenged the man, a man who also wore armor forged by Hephaestus to single combat, but Achilles pushed his cousin aside and killed Memnon without ceremony, giving his head and his armor to be burned with Nestor's son. Now, he was taking on the whole Trojan army himself. Achilles watched them run to the Seeing Gates. As Achilles ran, he thought about Patroclus, fighting outside the walls of Troy on his own the glory they could have won together. Then, Achilles caught it. There, standing on the walls of the sacred city, weren't just countless archers raining down arrows on him, arrows that glanced off his Olympian forged armor. Upon the wall, there were others. Behind the Trojans, the deathless gods watched. Hera, Poseidon, Athena, Hermes, Ares, Apollo, Zeus, they all watched him. Achilles slowed. He remembered Hector's last words about the arrow at the sea and gates. Achilles took a deep breath and rushed them. This was it then. He made eye contact with Apollo and nodded. The god nodded back. They both knew what this meant. Achilles took off in a run. If they were going to kill him here, he was going to make him work for it. He had been fighting the gods, fighting fate his whole life. He could go one more time. The arrow took him off balance when it hit his side. He slowed and looked down. Blood was starting to pour from his side, from the nearly invisible gap in his armor. He stopped and smiled. All that fighting over the last few months might have looked like an attempt to breach Troy and get through the darting gates but it was for Achilles to get through another set of gates, those of Hades. Patroclus was waiting for him on the other side of those gates. Troy could stand for a thousand years for all Achilles cared. Achilles dropped to the ground and died before the sea and gates. Just like Hector had said, his journey was complete. Apollo, the archer, stepped back, as Paris lowered his bow, it was finished. As the Trojans stopped retreating and turned around, stunned to see Achilles lying face down in the dirt, they cautiously approached. Achilles was the leading cause of death of men ages 15 to 75 in Troy, and even lying face down in a pool of his own blood, he was likely still the most dangerous person out there. 
It was only when, poking him with their spears and finding him unresponsive, they started to celebrate. Up on the wall, Paris's hands shook. He, he did it. He killed Achilles. Athena slapped him on the back of the head. Keep his name out of your mouth. He didn't kill anything. That was Apollo, and I don't even like Apollo right now. Paris slung his bow over his shoulder. Well, it was his arrow out of his bow, so history will be on his side here. Zeus laughed at that one. Paris's own family wasn't even on Paris's side. He was the Toby Flenderson of the ancient world. Oh, what's that? Of course Paris hadn't seen the office. Put your hand down, Ares. No high fives. I don't want to smell like blood. All right, everyone, let's roll. With that, Paris, the man of the hour, was left alone on the wall. Achilles might have been dead, but as the Trojans closed in around Ajax the Greater, and then Odysseus as he joined, the battle for Achilles' body and his armor, forged by the gods themselves, was just beginning. Uh, because I stepped in and defended his body and recovered the armor? Ajax the Greater shouted. Because I stepped in and defended his body and armor when no one else would. Because I'm literally the greatest warrior here. Uh, because you're not. Agamemnon ventured. Ajax loomed over him. What did the man just say? Agamemnon swallowed hard and shifted backwards. Look, the armor was Thetis's, Achilles' mother's to give, and she decreed that it would go to the greatest of the Greek warriors. You and Odysseus stepped forward, since you were the first to jump in and grab the body and carry it back to camp, and Odysseus fought off the people behind you. Anyway, we had an unbiased sample of Trojan slave women as the spies snuck up to the walls and listened last night. And they said they were more scared of Odysseus. Anyone can carry a body, but he actually fought. So thanks for playing, but the armor's going to Odysseus. Ajax blinked. So their convoluted plan was to send spies to listen to slave women talking and hope they happened to talk about who they were more scared of? Agamemnon nodded. And they did. And it was Odysseus. Ajax shook with rage. They had made a grave mistake that evening. He would be back, and he would prove to all of them that he was the best of the Greek warriors. Ajax found them in a field, plotting. Big old shaggy Agamemnon and his brother, Menelaus. Ajax had gone back to his tent, brushing past his concubine and son to grab his swords and rope. He had spotted them in an instant and charged them. They were out there with a team of men for protection, but after Ajax slaughtered half of their bodyguards and beat the two kings unconscious, he roped everyone and dragged them back to his tent. It was time for the fun to begin. Ajax saw one gagged warrior make eye contact with his concubine, Tecmessa, pleading with his eyes to please get help. Don't let him kill them. But Ajax simply gave him a crack on the head with his spear butt and dragged him inside. He told Tecmessa that he was not to be disturbed. Over the next several hours, Ajax made Agamemnon and Menelaus, the leaders of the Greek army, Watch as he slowly tortured their men, whipping them, making them box him, and other things. He really got creative. Until finally, first Menelaus, and then Agamemnon, died by his sword. At that point, Athena was outside with her favorite, Odysseus, standing next to her. He should see what happened inside Ajax's tent, and be prepared to make the right moves. The man was coming for him next. Ajax just watched the life fade from the eyes of Agamemnon and Menelaus. Oh, all right, here he comes. Stay completely still. The flap to the tent opened, and Ajax stood there, staring out. Athena, he said with a smile, thank you for your help last night. I found them. It's done. She nodded. Good, good. Yes, 
Just one more. Odysseus, I won't rest until he dies screaming, lashed to the pole of my tent, Ajax said, his mad eyes flashing. Athena said that she was not a fan of him murdering Odysseus, but murder machine's gonna murder. You do you. He thanked her, asking her to stay by his side, as she had been last night. She nodded. Always. Athena turned back to Odysseus when Ajax heard one of the Argive warriors coming too, and returned to the tent. So he has to die. Odysseus, who had stood there frozen, nodded. Yeah, also, why did you say he killed Agamemnon and Menelaus? Those, those were sheep. (laughs) Athena laughed. She didn't actually say he killed them. He watched the life fade from their eyes, or he thought he did. He was going to go out and murder all of you, but I stopped him, made him think that your livestock were Agamemnon and Menelaus. You're welcome. He found them in a field, killed a lot of them, and dragged some back, killed even more, and here we are. Oh, so the wanting me to die screaming thing was just part of some temporary madness then? Cool. To have a guy like that after me. Yikes. Odysseus was relieved. Oh, no, I had nothing to do with that. He literally wants to torture you to death. I would advise you to do your thing. You know, where you kill people without killing people. Because this guy is absolutely coming for you. Odysseus nodded and took off. Athena looked inside the tent and shuddered. All right, Ajax. Time for you to see what you've been up to. She snapped her fingers and the son of Telamon screamed. Okay, so let me get this straight. Techmessa, Ajax's concubine, said as she looked on her gore-covered captor. You aren't freaking out because you came to in a tent full of dismembered sheep, but because those sheep aren't dismembered people? Ajax nodded. Yes! It was horrible. He, he had gone mad. He had destroyed the wealth of the Greeks. Already, there were shouts in the distance starting to go up about Ajax, the madman who had tried to kill the commanders in the night, but with the aid of the gods, killed the livestock instead. In a society where livestock equals wealth, this might actually be kind of worse than killing the commanders. In a night, he had massacred the retirement plans of half a dozen kingdoms. They wouldn't have known about it if not for Odysseus. Odysseus went early among the men, spreading word about Ajax. The greatest of them had fallen the farthest. He couldn't even betray them all properly. Ajax buried his face in his hands. What could he do? Run home? He would shame his father, the great Telamon. He could charge Troy and die or win glory, but that would only benefit the Argives, Agamemnon and Menelaus. He looked at his concubine and sneered. Why was he having this conversation with a woman? She knew nothing of his struggle. Tecmessa nodded. Yeah, she knew nothing of being trapped, like a woman who had been the daughter of the greatest merchant in Pythia, now forced to share a bed and bear the child of the man who destroyed her city and everyone and everything she ever cared about. Ajax shook his head. He didn't have time for her riddles. She needed to get his son. Tecmessa rolled her eyes and went to go get Eurysaces, his son. And yeah, Ajax the Greater had a son at the Trojan War with his... The story calls it a concubine, but there's a title we have for someone who's taken captive and forced to share a bed with their captor, and it's not concubine. This was in no way consensual. Anyway, his son was old enough to understand what was going on and to hold a shield. So that's why Ajax gave the boy a shield. And to give him his first taste of the ravages of war, showed him a tent full of dismembered sheep. Ajax rose, likely sidestepping the seven-year-old's vomit, and grabbed his sword. He looked at Tecmessa. They would be here for him soon, but they wouldn't take this from him. This was Hector's sword, the one Ajax got when he battled him way back in the second episode. He bit his lip. The second episode... That's the last time things were good for him. How had things gone so wrong? The, the attempted murders? 
Tecmessa said, comforting her son. Ajax sheathed Hector's sword, again with the riddles. This is not the time. He said he was going to go bury the sword so that they couldn't take that from him as well. He strode off toward a lonely hill as the men in the camps further down the beach started forming a mob. Minutes after he left, his half-brother, Tusser, arrived at the tent that Tecmessa might just burn down. She didn't know what she was going to do about the sheep bits. Tusser said that the men almost stoned him on account of his brother, but Ajax can't leave. As Tusser was slipping away, Calchas, the prophet, you know, the one who snitched on Agamemnon in episode one of the series? Yeah, he said as long as Ajax stayed in his tent today, he would be safe. That the ire of the gods would abate. Tecmessa said that he would be back. He just went to bury Hector's sword. Just then, they heard a cry from the hilltop. Tecmessa, Teucer, and half a dozen of Ajax's subjects rushed up the hill. The sound had come from their king. As they looked on the man, Teucer began to weep, and Tecmessa looked into the dirt. She had to go get her son. Teucer nodded. They fled as the crowd began to gather. Ajax, the greatest warrior at Troy, had buried Hector's famous sword where no one could take it from him when he wedged it in the ground and fell on it himself. He buried it in his chest. Calchas was the seer for the Greek troops. He was the one who presided over the sacrifice of Iphigenia at Aulis after figuring out why the wind wasn't moving. He correctly called why Apollo was mad at them, and he told them just now about Ajax. Calchas said that things had changed after Ajax. The gods were talking to him, and the gods didn't close the door without opening a window and then slamming that window in your face and then making you climb through the broken glass to get outside before it surprised it's another room with bars on the windows and also surprised you just ate your own kids and what was he saying? New developments, Agamemnon sighed. These staff meetings were getting longer and longer. Calchas clapped. That's right. Well, they were in the end game now. And the first domino that would bring about the fall of Troy was revealed to him. The Hydra poison-coated arrows of Hercules. Odysseus stroked his beard. Huh. Yeah, he knew where the arrows were. They were with Philoctetes. Agamemnon sighed. With the body of Philoctetes, you mean. Odysseus looked at Diomedes. Uh... Nope. Agamemnon replied that Philoctetes died on the way there. They stopped on the island of Chrysi, and he was bitten by a snake. There was this whole thing where he wouldn't stop screaming from the poison, so Odysseus and Diomedes put him out of his misery. Odysseus smiled. Uh, well, he was bitten by a snake. Agamemnon's eyes widened. Wait, did we just leave him? Guys, he was chosen by Hercules himself to light the demigod's funeral pyre. He had arrows that would kill a god. Odysseus nodded. Yeah, that's why they didn't want to kill the guy. They just left him with his arrows and his men, but with any luck, he's still there, languishing in pain on Chrysi. It was Diomedes' idea, Odysseus shouted. Agamemnon shook his head. It was never anybody else's idea. All right, well, Odysseus had left him, so it was Odysseus's problem go get the guy who hated him and who was armed with the deadliest weapons in existence. Odysseus would figure something out. He always did. When they arrived at the island of Chrysi, the plan was for Diomedes and Odysseus to split up, with Diomedes trying to convince Philoctetes that Odysseus had turned on him and that Diomedes needed the arrows so they could finally take revenge on the wily little king. Unfortunately, Diomedes was not Odysseus. He wasn't cool with the outright lying, and he confessed. The whole plan collapsed. Odysseus popped out of hiding, offering healing and restoration for Philoctetes, who drew his bow on the Ithacan king. This was going south in a big way, when suddenly, a voice boomed from above. I know what you're thinking. Is he flexing? No, I always look like this, Hercules said, grinning. His ghost descended, in all of its naked, 
Nemean Lion Cloak wearing glory. He turned to Philoctetes. Hey, bud, thanks for setting my body on fire and burning away all the mortal bits. I'm all God now. Sure, I do virtually nothing else except for this for the remainder of Greek myth, but I had a good run. Beats Hades, too. What are you guys up to? Odysseus rose from his knees and said that they were here because they were trying to capture the city of Troy, and they needed Hercules' arrows to do so. Hercules' eyebrows arched. Oh, you guys fighting at Troy, huh? I took that city once. Took me about 20 minutes. Tough time. How long have you guys been there? Oh, just 10 years, Odysseus said, looking at his feet. Huh, cool, Hercules said. But yes, he knew from the gods that Troy would be conquered a second time with his arrows, and Philoctetes would be healed, too. Hercules squatted down in front of Philoctetes. Hey, champ, these guys over here, they, they need your help. Sure, this Odysseus guy is annoying and... He's a talker, a schemer, really. I'm more of a kill everything first and don't ask questions because I'm Hercules and if I killed them, they deserve to die. But these guys need you. The Greeks need you. Think you could do it for your old buddy, Herc? Philoctetes, talking to his hero, bit his lip and nodded. Ghost Hercules clapped him on the shoulder. Thanks, bud. You get to try and talk to Machion. Tell him Hercules sent you and he'll fix up that foot of yours. Hercules stood, rushing back his Nemean lion cloak. Well, they should be getting on to Troy, and he had to get going too. It was almost feasting time on Olympus. Ha! He laughed. Just kidding, it was always feasting time on Olympus. God jokes. Enjoy your merciless, endless war. Philoctetes rose to his feet, and, after ten years of screaming, he rejoined the Greek warriors. Philoctetes jumped for the first time in a decade without screaming. Wow, yeah, totally healed. He grinned and looked at Troy in the distance. I feel like I could take on the whole empire myself. Troy's not an empire. It's part of a small confederation of city-states, Odysseus said, passing by. Philoctetes sighed. Hey, uh, according to the gods, I'm the greatest hope you have, so try not to abandon me on an island again, Odysseus. Try not to make it so appealing, Odysseus replied, not missing a beat. Philoctetes turned to Agamemnon. He wanted to do something. He wasn't like them. He had been doing nothing for ten years but languishing. So pretty much exactly what we've been doing, Odysseus interjected. Thank you, Odysseus, Agamemnon replied. That'll be all. Philoctetes said that he was only one archer, but uh, mind if he killed Paris? That got the attention of everyone in the group. Yeah, go for it. We'll see that, for some reason, it took maybe the greatest weapon in existence to kill maybe the least threatening warrior at Troy, but that will be right after this. Paris was answering a challenge for his city his people, his love. This one, though, he knew he had. It was an archery challenge. During one of the battles, a man called Paris out, and the battle stopped. He challenged Paris to an archery duel. Paris, who was still feeling good about taking out Achilles, grinned. Sure, he'd kill this guy. He looked up to the wall, to Helen, saying that she knew he loved her, right? Helen said, aw, she was tricked by the gods into loving him, too. Paris nodded, as good as he ever got. Let's do this. Paris stepped out, and Philoctetes didn't wait, shooting an arrow at the prince. It went wide. Paris laughed. Ooh, gonna have to do better than that. Gonna... The next one found his heel. Yow! Okay, ow, don't cry, Paris, don't cry, he told himself through tears. It was just a flesh wound. He could still... Ooh, wait a second. He looked down at the arrow, one of the fabled arrows of Hercules, one that had killed not only some of the worst monsters in existence, but Hercules himself. 
This was it. He wept as they carried him back inside and the fighting exploded again. Philoctetes smiling. His name would live on forever as the one who killed Paris. Paris laid there. He still had so much left to do, so much left to live. So many cities to doom into an endless war over his thoughtless lust. And Paris, well, Paris died doing what he loved. Creeping out Helen, staring up at her face and telling her how much he loved her. He had done it all for her, and it had been worth it. Helen shook her head. Nope. Nope, it wasn't. She rested Paris on the ground and breathed a sigh of relief. He was dead. This ten-year-long nightmare was over. She was free. And she was, for about an hour. Paris's body wasn't even cold yet, before his brother started arguing over who got to marry Helen now. Luckily, they all had part of a claim, I guess, and no marriage could be made on that day. Two brothers emerged as the front-runners, Diphobus and Helenus, and they argued into the night. That night, Helen looked at Aethra, Theseus's mom, who, yes, has been there the whole time. She was taken captive while Theseus was imprisoned in Hades, and since she had basically raised Helen from a young girl, Helen had convinced her brothers to let the older woman live, wanting to protect the woman. Aethra followed Helen from Sparta, and she had been a constant, trustworthy companion in Troy. Now, she was lowering the rope down the walls of Troy. The gods had kept Helen in Troy, forcing her to... be with Paris, but now that that man was dead, she couldn't be expected to stay. She could return to Menelaus. She could go home. Aethra watched from above and tried to call out but a hand slid around her own mouth. Helen squinted. What was going on up there? Just then, she heard a scream, telling her to run. Helen didn't think about it. She just ran, right into Diphobus, who had been watching her since the moment Paris died. The next morning, the city awoke to news. Diphobus had forced Helen to marry him that night. Disgusted, Helenus, Diphobus's rival, and another son of Priam left the city and the war. Back in the Greek camps, Calchas, who was studying the entrails of a fallen Trojan warrior, which, yes, he actually did, grinned. He looked up at Agamemnon. It was happening. Knock, knock. Odysseus said as he entered Helenus's home. Nice hovel you have here? Far cry from Troy. Helenus nodded. Yeah, it wasn't much, but wait, what was Odysseus doing here? He rose to his feet and grabbed his sword. Odysseus said if Helenus was truly a good oracle, he would know how this would go for him if he went that route. Besides, Odysseus had a whole group of warriors outside. Sit down. They needed to talk. Helenus was the only one that knew the secret oracles that protected Troy. And Troy was fated to fall, so vis-a-vis, Helenus would talk. The only thing that still remained to be seen was if he would talk willingly for a price or if his words needed to be extracted through screams. Helenus swallowed hard and made the deal. He would tell the Greeks everything they needed to know, but in exchange, he wanted a life far from here a secure home in a distant land. Odysseus nodded. Done. The men rose, and Helenus followed the king of Ithaca outside to a sole chariot waiting for him. He looked to Odysseus. He came alone. He lied. Odysseus shrugged. Odysseus. All right, let's get going. As we talked about, Helenus was one of the many princes of Troy, son of King Priam and Queen Hecuba. He had learned prophecy from his sister, Cassandra, and in his opinion, he did it way better. He said Cassandra's prophecies were always wrong. Anyway, he would be happy to let the Greeks know how they could win this time. You could say Troy had one tiny weakness, an Achilles heel, if you will. Too soon? Too soon. Hey, they were in the know. What was the deal with the heel? The heel deal, if you will. Achilles didn't die by a heel out there. The Greeks nodded. Their understanding was that the heel thing was added later. 
If you think back to the last Argonaut episode, you'll remember Thetis holding a baby over the fire, a process that was interrupted by Peleus, returning home from the quest for the Golden Fleece. This was to imply that his immortality was incomplete, and though powerful, he could be killed. Helenus nodded. Cool, nice to have that cleared up. Anyway, back to the fall of Troy. They needed three things. The son of Achilles, a bone belonging to Pelops, Agamemnon and Menelaus' great-grandfather, and the Palladium. Odysseus laughed out loud. The Palladium, okay, yeah, really? To capture Troy, they had to get the Palladium? Thanks, Captain Obvious. Agamemnon shook his head. What was the Palladium? Odysseus said that Troy was founded as Ilium, by Ilus. He won a wrestling match and got 50 young men and 50 women and a dappled cow, as you do. An oracle told the king who told Ilus to follow the cow until it laid down and voila, that was the place to build a city. They did, and when the cow laid down, Ilus prayed to Zeus for a sign and the palladium fell from the heavens. It's kind of a statue of Athena. It currently sits at the heart of the citadel, surrounded by the walls that were built by Poseidon and Apollo themselves. Take that and you take the city, or take the city and you take that. It was next to impossible, so thanks for nothing, Hellenus. Agamemnon held up his hands. Now, hold on. It was the best option they had. Odysseus and Diomedes had been to Syros once, to get Achilles. They could go again. They could get a bone of Pelops as well. When they got back, there would be a way forward. He knew it. Odysseus sighed. All right, well, looks like he was sailing back across the Aegean to get the child of Achilles. Definitely where he thought he would be when he recruited the boy's father to war almost 15 years ago. Right back in the same place. Thanks, fate. Neopotalamus swallowed hard as he looked out on the sea. A man had come. He said the boy's father was dead. The father that he had never known. And now these men were here with his armor, saying that only Neopotalamus could win the war. He just felt, Nope, nope, Odysseus said, waving his hands in front of the boy. No more inner monologues. No more pathos. That was last week's episode. They had been at war for ten years years. Odysseus' own son was as old as Neopotalamus, and he really wanted to get things wrapped up, and here they were, on an unrelated fetch quest, while his horse idea sat firmly on the back burner. So yeah, Neopotalamus could have all these feelings about joining and ending the war that had killed his father, and oh, sad, but he could do it on his own time. Get on the boat. The teenager slumped, and got on. They met Diomedes' boat in the harbor. They split up when they reached Syros and he went to mainland Greece to get a certain bone of Pelops, the cursed great-grandfather of Agamemnon and Menelaus. It was time to head back to Troy. When they arrived back at the camp outside of the city, a plan had developed in Odysseus' absence. Another one of Priam's sons, Antenor, defected because he didn't get to marry Helen. Not exactly honorable reasons, but a defection is a defection. And he had a plan for one Greek warrior, to get in the city. Odysseus volunteered, right before being informed that the plan required a man to be whipped within an inch of his life. So, a few hours later, Odysseus staggered toward the city. There were times when, the gates manned by an army, people could enter and leave. Spears were up when they saw a man pick up and run from the Greek camps. But they relaxed when said man fell on his face. The man was dragged inside the gates, and his cloak was sticking to the bloody gashes on his back. He said he was a slave who had escaped the Greeks. He had information. I know this man. A voice popped up from behind the guards. Helen looked down. She had just been passing by. This man, he was a slave of... Odysseus, was it? Helen smiled. Don't worry, the slave would only find friends here. She knew how cruel and insecure little Odysseus was. He actually tried to marry her, as if he had a chance. She told the guards to get him up and bring him into her home. They stopped her. No, no, no. He needed to be brought to one of the princes of Troy. Helen sighed. One, he would be dead before he made it there. She needed to stop his bleeding. And two, yes, she was the wife of the crown prince. 
Her home was the safest in Troy. Take him. Now. I want to go home, Odysseus, Helen said, as she washed Odysseus' wounds. Oh, I don't know why you think I'm Odysseus. I'm just an escaped slave. I'm nobody. Odysseus thought about it. Oh, that was a good alias. Helen nodded. Sure. Well, if she was speaking to Odysseus, she would say that what happened with Paris was... It was horrible. She knew nothing would make up for the lives lost. Not even that she had been coaxed and trapped here by a goddess. That she was a bribe for a contest. That she was a prisoner now more than ever, with Paris dead. She said she would tell Odysseus that she wanted to go home. She would ask him what he would need to make that happen. The Palladium, the escaped slave, replied. <laughs> Helen chuckled. Even the wily Odysseus would have his work cut out for him with that one. He would need help, too. With that, Hecuba, the wife of Priam and the queen of Troy, entered the room. Was this him? Was this Odysseus? Helen nodded and turned to the king of Ithaca. All right, let's talk terms. Wait, Odysseus said to Hecuba, his back raw and bandages just barely keeping the blood from soaking through onto the clothes of a Trojan nobleman that Helen had given him. The queen stopped, and Odysseus pulled them both into an alley. A shadowy form passed them and paused. Searching, Odysseus stepped behind him and closed his eyes forever. While Odysseus was wiping his knife, Hecuba looked down at the poor Trojan boy, dead for doing his job. Odysseus nodded, and he wouldn't be the only one. He turned back when she didn't follow. What? She was in this now too. This was the price of peace. Let's go. Later on that night, with the palladium lifted from the citadel, Odysseus said a thank you to Hecuba. She said that no thanks was needed. He just needed to remember the deal. He nodded. When Troy was taken, they wouldn't kill people who didn't fight back. If someone surrendered they live. With that, Odysseus slid out a narrow and muddy hole that took wastewater from the city. They had everything now. They had the shoulder blade of Pelops, the son of Achilles, and the sacred statue that protected Troy. Odysseus hoped the oracle was right. He hoped the end of the war was nigh. There was a fire on the horizon, and the first light revealed the truth. It was over. The war was over. They were cautious at first, but the conclusion was inescapable. The Greeks had burned their camps, everything they couldn't take with them. They sacrificed to the gods and left in the night. The doors of Troy were flung open, and the city came out to investigate. It was true the spot on the beach that had been the Greek home for a decade in a war that claimed too many to count, was empty. They were gone. In their place, only a massive wooden horse remained. Well, that's really nice and cool, Antinor, one of Priam's sons said, investigating the giant horse. We should take it inside. Everyone, grab a rope. Why would you do that? Cassandra. A seer and one of Priam's daughters replied, This is a trick. That horse is full of armed warriors. For real, Laokuan, a seer added. Why would they leave? They were winning. What? I'm right. They took the Palladium, for goodness sake. Here, check it out. Laokuan tossed a spear and hit the horse, made from fir wood. Inside, the spear stopped half an inch from Neopotamus's temple but the boy didn't flinch. Odysseus nodded. Kid had a lot of his father in him. Same couldn't be said of everyone else in the horse, and they shifted. A clang of weapons was heard. 
Hear that? Cassandra yelled. Did anyone hear that? We got one, one of the Trojan warriors said, ignoring Cassandra. It was Sinon, the deserter. He said that the Greeks were gone. They were sick of the war, but the weather had kept them there for weeks longer than they intended. The plan was to sacrifice a person to propitiate the wind, and Odysseus was going to sacrifice him, Sinon, so that they could go home. Odysseus hated him because Sinon knew he was responsible for the death of Palamedes. Odysseus had bribed Calchas to point the figure at Sinon, and he would have died if the wind didn't pick up. As they were packing, Sinon made his escape. Priam ordered the cuffs off Sinon, but Laocoon wasn't finished. Why a horse? Sinon said it was because when Odysseus brought back the Palladium, it immediately was engulfed in flames as soon as he entered the great camp. They had to placate the anger of Athena. This was a gift to her, not you guys. So, why is it so big? Laocoon asked. It's because there's literally 50 guys in there right now. Just look. I mean, there's like a trap door in the bottom. Come on, guys. Cassandra, again, spoke up. Cassandra, please, one of Priam's sons shouted. We're trying to get to the bottom of this thing. It's so big because it's so powerful, Sinon said. Basically, if this thing was taken into the city, the oracle said that Troy should become so powerful that it could marshal all the forces of Asia, which is a lot of forces, by the way. They could invade Greece and conquer Mycenae. Okay, guys, really, this reeks of Odysseus. Is anyone else seeing this? Laocoon blurted. This is a trap. This thing needs to be burned now. Guys, what's everyone looking at? They were looking at the massive serpents. And then Laocoon, when the snakes rose from the water and wrapped themselves around the seer, eating him as he was dragged screaming back into the sea. This was after they coiled around and killed his twin sons. Huh, Diphobus said, as the serpents, sent by Apollo, slithered into Athena's temple at Troy, one wrapping around her foot and the other crouching behind her shield. Welp, that seems like a pretty obvious sign. Let's dedicate this horse to Athena and get it in the walls. Guys, this is a really bad idea. They'll pop out in the night and this will actively lead to all of our deaths. Not mine, Antinor said. Cassandra nodded. Yeah, that was true. Still, her other brothers, though, just looked at the skies. Hey, uh, just a heads up. Not involved in this. Not involved in this. All this heresy talk. Really don't want to be eaten by snakes. That looked very scary. Of course, Cassandra knew that this would happen. That no one would believe her. Apollo had given her the ability to see the future as a sort of enticement, but she rejected his advances. So, not being able to take the gift back, he added to it. She could see the future, but no one would ever believe her. She sighed and followed the horse into Troy. It was easy to get out of the city. Sinon, even though he was a Greek, was allowed to walk freely. The war was over, and he hated Odysseus and the Greek leaders as much as anyone. He was allowed to stay in Troy for as long as he wanted. Wine ran in the streets, and the pent-up anxiety of a decade of war evaporated in song and revelry. On the darkened plains, Sinon found what he needed to, the grave of Achilles. The man had been buried right next to Patroclus. They would never be apart again. Sinon's pulse raced as he lit the fire and waved a torch. Somewhere out there, in the darkened sea, a thousand ships unfurled their sails. Agamemnon had taken the Greek force, and they had stayed docked off the coast of the island of Tenedos for a day. They watched the torch spark to life on the shore, the one that had been their home for 10 years, and they knew it. It worked. Let's go. Meanwhile, inside the city, Antinor, one of the sons of Priam who had defected, stepped over a sleeping countryman, and he walked up to the horse and whispered that all was well. The time had come. The trapdoor flew open, and the Greeks descended. Teucer led the party that went to open the gates. Diomedes went to the wall to take out the few sentries that remained. Menelaus? He went to Helen. Odysseus, 
who was going to go to the gates to remind everyone of his promise to Hecuba, not to kill Trojans who didn't fight back, abandoned that plan when he saw the Spartan king make for the palace. Odysseus followed Menelaus. Aeneas slept fitfully. He hadn't taken part in any of the partying. In fact, he agreed with a small group of detractors that they should have burned the horse on sight. But once the party started, no one cared. His dread was confirmed that night when a familiar face found him in his dreams. It was the bloodied face of Hector, the only prince Aeneas considered worthy of the name. He stood, bloody and battered, the holes in his legs and neck caked with dirt. He told Aeneas that a flood of fire was coming. Aeneas and everyone he loved should run. Aeneas woke with a start to his wife shaking him. Something was wrong. They looked out and saw the fire starting to glow over parts of Troy, the clang of weapons just beginning to rise in the streets. Aeneas nodded. It was happening. He gathered up his family relics and yelled out to those that had listened to him that they shouldn't trust the horse, and he called them to arms. It was time to defend Troy. As they rushed into the main square, they stopped. They could see there was no saving Troy. After tonight, there would be no more Troy. Thousands of Greek warriors were pouring into the city. Diomedes had cut down the sentries, and the first of the men, not knowing or caring about Odysseus' promise, had simply kicked down doors and cut the throats of men in their beds. They dragged the women out and set the houses ablaze. Even if an alarm was sounded, who would answer it? A bunch of drunk unarmed and unarmored people barely able to rise from bed, when Aeneas saw his king, Priam, break and run, he knew that the time had come. He gathered the men with him and headed back home to get his wife and young son. Troy was lost. They were leaving. Priam, meanwhile, didn't run by choice. He had been a boy the last time the walls were breached, and he told himself, never again. He looked on the devastation at the fire and people being stabbed in the street, took out his sword and heard a voice. It was Hecuba, his wife, the woman he loved, and the woman he had 19 sons with, almost half of his sons. She had found a secret hiding place under the laurel tree in the courtyard at the altar of Zeus. Priam turned and saw her huddled there, barely visible with his daughters. He looked back at the men slaughtering their way through the city and climbed underground. He would have stayed there, too, if he didn't watch his son die on the steps of the altar, the blood dripping down into their hiding place. Priam shook as the man, the one who wore Achilles' armor, walked away. Priam had watched too many of his sons die in this war. He wouldn't watch another. As Neopotamus strode away in triumph, a spear flew over his shoulder. He turned and grinned. The old man stumbled backward as Neopotamus, son of Achilles, sheathed the sword and chased after the king of Troy. Priam slipped on his son's blood and Hecuba screamed as Neopotamus collared him, lifting Priam to his feet. The son of Achilles dragged Priam away. You know, I thought about what Priam's last thoughts would be. By all accounts, he was an okay guy, especially by the standard of Greek mythology. He had been pulled into a war that, by all accounts, had been engineered by the gods themselves. It had truly been the tragic consequences of a thousand inconsequential decisions. When it was too late, when the war was already coming, he realized what Paris did, and he seemed to hate his son for it. That interchange between the men last week was nearly word for word from the Iliad. What I'm trying to say is, he didn't deserve to die the way he did. Neopotamus dragged him through his own city as he watched the devastation spread like a wildfire through every inch of it. He was watching his home burn. Knew his sons would be killed, his daughters would be raped, and his people wiped from the face of the earth. Priam, the king of Troy, was beheaded on the steps of his own palace 
for all to see by the son of Achilles. His body was dragged to the grave of Achilles and he was left to rot, headless and without burial. Having lived for about 80 years and his, what, 70-year reign bookended by his city being sacked, the old king could finally rest. Helen screamed as the blade inched closer and closer to Menelaus's throat. Odysseus was unconscious. They got the jump on Deophobus, but the man fought with the intensity of 10 hectares. Even with Athena on his side, Odysseus was sidelined early, leaving the son of Priam alone with Menelaus. Now, even though the king of Sparta fought against the knife that was slowly moving toward his throat, he began to realize it was over. He had come so far. He had found her, and he had lost her once again. Then, Deophobus relaxed. His knife clanged to the ground. He was dead. Menelaus rolled the man off him and saw the knife sticking out of his back. The knife that Helen, his Helen, had put there. She killed the man, and she had saved his life. Odysseus came too, as Menelaus stood looming over Helen. The tension in the room was palpable. But then he broke out in tears and hugged her. She hugged him, and they kissed. He picked her up and carried her out to the boats. Odysseus rolled his eyes. Ugh, those two deserved each other. He rose and hung his head. The city had fallen, but the fighting, it hadn't ceased. The screams in the night, the fires, the death, the blood flowing in the street. This is what they brought. This is what they have been working for. At the end of it all, when the Trojans were either dead or enslaved, and the Greek leaders stood atop the walls they had tried so hard to overcome, Menelaus waved down to Helen, put his hands on his hips as he watched the warriors pile treasure plundered from the Trojans, and thought about it. You know what? Maybe the real treasure was the friends we made along the way. Odysseus shook his head. Yeah, no, we all kind of hate each other, and the real treasure is the treasure we just sacked a city for. You guess that the fringe benefit of selling your soul was that you got the money. His 12 ships were being loaded as he spoke for a safe and calm ride across the Aegean. They would all make it. He would secure a future for Telemachus, his son, and this will have all been worth it. Neopotamus walked up with a woman in tow. Hey, he had some business he wanted to talk about. It was Andromache, Hector's wife. Neopotamus, Achilles' son, looked on her like a hungry animal. He was still covered in the blood of her father-in-law. My father killed her husband. I want her, he said, licking his lips. Odysseus, who just watched the sacking of an ancient world city, shuddered. Eugh. The battle had awakened something in this guy. Agamemnon nodded, sure, but there's one issue. Calchas? Calchas, the seer, stepped forward. He said that the boy, the infant, Astyanax, would grow up to avenge his parents in his city. He would be a constant danger. <laughs> Neopotamus laughed. Was that it? He could fix that. He turned to Andromache, ripped the baby from her arms, and tossed him over the wall. He turned to Calchas. Kid can't grow up to avenge his dad if he doesn't grow up. Let's go. He grabbed the stunned and speechless Andromache by her arm and dragged her off. The three men, Agamemnon, Calchas, and Odysseus, stood there wide-eyed. Next, Cassandra was dragged before the group, and Agamemnon announced that she was his. She shook her head. Horrible idea, buddy. He said he didn't really care what she thought. <sighs> Cassandra sighed. No one did. But if he took her home, he was going to die. Though he was probably going to die anyway. Clytemnestra, his wife, was still feeling pretty enraged about Iphigenia. Even ten years on. <laughs> Agamemnon laughed. 
That's hilarious. No, Clytemnestra was 100% behind killing our daughter for a war where I abandoned her to plot for over a decade. Let's go. Odysseus, who wasn't really interested in another wife at this point, he was smart enough to know that that would lead to way too much trouble back home, took Hecuba, the queen, who was not his biggest fan, after going back on his oath not to kill people who didn't fight back. And she made it as far as the boats, screaming insults at the Greeks, before someone killed her. Alternate versions have her turning into a dog, and then swimming into the sea. Nestor and his sons had already left. The old king didn't want to take part in the looting of Troy. He had done his part, and lost enough. Diomedes had left too, taking his armies, but the death of Palamedes, and the fact that he had stabbed Aphrodite, meant that his wife back home was filled with some feelings in his absence, and was now living with three men. Odysseus looked back to Troy with a sigh. Ten years. Was it glory to do what they did? And all this from an oath he had made up 25 years ago. All that to get the hand of Penelope. He smiled. Penelope. After all this, she was the only bright spot in his life. After all this death, he would finally be able to go home. He commanded his 12 ships to set sail. He was so close now. He had survived the war. It had loomed for so long and now it was over. And he literally just made the trip across the Aegean to go to Syros. So, he would be home in no time. Troy was still. Its great walls had crumbled. The fires inside smoldered. Priam's palace was in ruins, and his heirs either lay dead in the streets or were prisoners scattered to the wind. People would emerge from the ruins, bury what dead they could, and scratch out a life in what had been the greatest city in their world. There would always be rumors, rumors that the infant son of Hector had survived his fall, been raised and rebuilt Troy, or that Antinor returned to the city of his ancestors and revived it. But even if those rumors were true, it would only remain a shadow of its former glory, the place where Hector fought Achilles, Agamemnon battled Priam, and the greatest heroes of their age clashed in a conflict that would be remembered forever. It's easy to see why the Iliad is this landmark of world literature. It is extremely old, and it's incredibly complex, with these deep, conflicted characters that you just don't see in the ancient world epic literature. It's also easy to see why the Iliad cuts the story off where it does. It's clear that the Iliad is the story of Hector and Achilles, and the two men at the end, Achilles and Priam, finding common ground in humanity on the battlefield is a much more hopeful ending than the heroes gleefully and unambiguously committing genocide. Granted, I'm applying a modern-day label to an ancient world thing. What we saw, the devastation of total war, that was just how war went in those days. So for them, it would be less about committing atrocities during wartime and more doing war during wartime. Of course, there are more stories to tell. We'll catch up with Agamemnon, Menelaus, Diomedes, Nestor, Aeneas and the founding of Rome, and especially Odysseus, who, surprise, does not make it home as quickly as he thinks he will. Next week on the show, we'll be telling a few stories of the Tanuki, the raccoon dog trickster with a giant scrotum from Japanese folklore. So get excited to never look at Tom Nook the same way again. The creature this week is the Shadavar from Persian folklore. You're exploring the forest, and then you hear the most beautiful music you've ever heard. It's happy, it's sad, tragic, and hopeful. You part the branches, and you see a unicorn swaying gently. The animals of the forest all gathered around in peaceful tranquility, all to enjoy the beautiful music. It's like a fairy tale. In more ways than one, too. Because like a fairy tale, it seems pleasant and innocent, 
but things are about to turn surprisingly brutal when the shot of R, the talented unicorn, starts skewering and killing all the people and animals it gathered, the ones that just wanted to listen to the beautiful song it made from the wind moving through its horn. As we've talked about, unicorns in the folklore of the Middle Ages are a far cry from our modern-day conceptions. They were basically magical, angry horses with horns on their heads. The Shadavar is only a more dangerous version. Its horn is hollow, and only the Shadavar can get the full range out of it, and it uses its song to lure creatures into a false sense of security and artistic appreciation before it murders and eats them. For people who have managed to get the jump on this murderous equine jigglypuff, the horn fetches a high price, and, according to legend, even Plato, the philosopher, managed to get his hands on a Shadavar alicorn, and it stayed in his family for generations. So if you're breaking one of the rules of myths and legends and going into the dark forest alone, don't sit down for an impromptu carnivorous unicorn jam session. Unless, I guess, you have the athletic prowess of Play-Doh and have been wanting to learn a new instrument. Then go for it. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs there are links to even more music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring us this week. Are you stuck at home, feeling isolated and worried? BetterHelp offers online professional counselors who can help through video or phone sessions. Plus, exchange unlimited messages. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a counselor you'll love in less than 24 hours. Get professional help when you want it, wherever you are. BetterHelp is a truly affordable option, and our listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code LEGENDS. Go to betterhelp.com slash legends. All right, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Hold up. 